We're beginning a new series through the book of Malachi. And some of you have maybe said, Mala, what? <laughs> it is a book, a short book in the dusty parts of our Bible that probably we don't often turn to. And if you need to go to your index to find the right page, that is uh, totally fine. You've actually probably accidentally turned to Malachi when you've been trying to find one of the Gospels. It is the very last book in the Old Testament. So if you turn to Matthew and just go a few pages earlier, you'll find Malachi. If you've been at Jordan Valley Church for very long, uh, you know that we will often uh, work or preach through entire books of the Bible. And one of the reasons for this is that it is helpful to understand that particular message of the whole book. And I think you understand each passage better as we look at it in light of the whole. The other thing is it, it takes us to various parts of the Bible that you might not turn to on your own. We uh, discover some hidden gems. We reach maybe some difficult parts of Scripture. But in it all, it is helping to help you understand more and more of who God is. And so we're kicking off a seven-week series going through the book of Malachi. And, and I've titled this series, Does God Still Care? Uh, that is a question I think the people in this book were wrestling with. Does God still care about us? And I think it's a question that many of you wrestle with as well. Does God still care about me? So with that, let's read our passage for this morning. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people un always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask as we come to this uh, passage that is perhaps unfamiliar, uh, certainly has some difficult sections in it, Lord, that though you would speak to each and every one of us here today, Lord, uh, you know how each of us have come this morning with certain questions, certain burdens, certain distractions. You know how each of us have wondered at times, God, do you still love us? And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would speak and build us up, remake us into the image of Christ through your living word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I remember, and maybe some of you do too, back in that 2008-2009 uh, global recession, there was this buzzword that I heard everywhere, stress test. Maybe anyone else remember that word? The Federal Reserve was going to stress test some of the banks. A number of large financial institutions had collapsed and their collapse threatened to melt down the rest of the economy. And I remember it seemed like every time Ben Bernanke, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve at that point, got on TV, he was always talking about stress testing the banks. And the idea was we're going to subject them to some pressure to make sure they have enough money to withstand this oncoming financial ruin. I also remember Ben Bernanke served you know, as the federal chairman for a long time, and the amount of hair that he lost from when he started that job to when he ended it, I doubt he would have survived his own stress test. But we get the idea 
with a stress test. You put some pressure on something in a controlled environment to see how it reacts, see how there, if there are any weak spots, and hopefully deal with those weak spots before there's some type of catastrophic failure. A doctor might order a stress test for your heart. But have you ever had a relational stress test? Probably a lot of us have, but I doubt you did it intentionally. I mean, how many of you have said to your spouse, hey, honey, here's the credit card. Why don't you just go wild this weekend and spend whatever you want, and we'll see how it affects our relationship, and then we can talk about it. Right? Or one of you says to the spouse, why don't you spend the next couple weeks working 80, 90 hours each week, and let's see how it affects our communication. You don't typically do that sort of thing, but you've likely stress-tested your relationship, but it wasn't your choice. And how did you react when your relationship was stress-tested? Maybe you're feeling right there in the moment. You're going through some stress in an important relationship, and you're not sure if you're going to survive it. See, the, the thing about a stress test is it cuts through all of the fluff and the good feelings and gets to the core of what a relationship is built upon. And so does the stress in that relationship reveal a commitment that runs deeper than your present troubles? Or does it reveal that there was never much to this relationship other than some fickle feelings? In our passage today, we have something like a relational stress test between God and his people. The Israelites are wondering, does God still care about us? Things haven't worked out like we thought they would. We've suffered a lot. God has allowed all these bad things to happen to us, and now he seems to have forgotten us. And so the people are wrestling with this question, does God still care? Does God still love us? Because when I look around at my life right now, it doesn't seem like it. It feels like we're failing this stress test, God. And what I want you to remember this morning is this. God loves his people with an unbreakable love. God loves his people with an unbreakable love. And we're going to look here at three points. First, just some background and understanding of the book of Malachi. Second, this question, does God still love us? And then third, the basis of God's love. So first, a little bit of background. You might not know it, but the titles for all of our Bible books uh, weren't original. They were added later on to help us with finding the books of the Bible and to help with organizing them. And so the title for Malachi comes from that first verse, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, we don't know anything about Malachi. This is the only place he's mentioned. He's kind of something of a mysterious figure in the Bible. One interesting tidbit is there's some ambiguity here in that Malachi, which kind of sounds like a name to us, could also be translated as my messenger. In Hebrew, the word malak means messenger, and that I sound at the end of it means my. So an alternative translation to the first verse would be the word of the Lord to Israel through my messenger, in which case the author would be anonymous, or even if it was Malachi, he's almost anonymous because we don't know anything about him. And Malachi is the last book in what is often called the Minor Prophets, not because they're less important, but because these books are all shorter than many of the other prophets. And there are 12 Minor Prophets, 
Uh, maybe the most well-known of them is Jonah. But recently, people have started seeing these 12 minor prophets as actually making up more of a whole book, not 12 separate books, but maybe something like a multi-volume book that has been put together. For instance, there seems to be some arrangement in the books, that they are arranged in three sets of four books. They alternate in the audience. So the one book starts out talking to Judah, the southern kingdom. The next book talks to the northern kingdom, and it goes back and forth in that way. They seem to be ordered by when the prophet lived, from oldest to newest. But then also in that ordering, it seems that there is a growing sense and longing for a redeemer to come to Israel. And this culminates then at the very end of Malachi, where it says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. And if you know the Old Testament, Elijah was one of the most well-known prophets in Israel. And it's interesting because then the end of the Old Testament, with how we have it arranged, ends with an anticipation of Elijah. And then if you turn to the next couple pages, you will discover that Jesus calls John the Baptist a new Elijah. So while these books were written at various times to different people, it seems that at some point in the arrangement of the Bible, they were kind of arranged intentionally to tell a larger story, one that is about God's faithfulness and ultimately about his redemption of a broken people. And the end of Malachi, at the end of most every Old Testament book, there's a little kind of note by the copyist that gives information like how many words and stuff like that are in this book. And what is interesting is at the end of Malachi, it doesn't refer to the book of Malachi, but it refers to the book of the 12, singular, the book of the 12, referring to all 12 minor prophets. So it seems like at some point in the history, they were seen as one book, which I think is a way cooler title, the book of the 12 over the minor prophets. So we're going to look at the last book in the book of the 12, Malachi. And we don't know when Malachi was written. He was the last of these minor prophets, the latest. The the best guess is that he lived sometime around the time of Ezra. So if you remember, Israel, in their history, they lost their land. Invaders came in. Jerusalem was ransacked, and many of the Israelites were carted off to the surrounding nations. But over time, they were allowed to come back, and they rebuilt the temple. And chapter 1 of Malachi talks about bringing sacrifices to the temple. And so our best guess is that Malachi lived at some point after these Jews had come back into Israel and had rebuilt the temple and started living life again in their homeland. This book is unique in its arrangement, and our sermon series is really going to follow this, is that it's broken up into six chunks, six kind of hypothetical conversations where each one takes a similar form where God makes some statement, like we have in our passage. I have always loved you. And then the people respond with a question or doubt. Well, really? And then God goes on to explain this is how this statement is true. And so each week we're going to look at one of these conversations. And so let's jump into our passage uh, for today, our second point. Does God still love us? God says, I have loved you. The people, though, respond, really? It doesn't look like it. Now, this series of disputes is is not an actual conversation between God and his people, but God is using a rhetorical device to create a conversation based on what he knows his people are feeling and thinking. And so why don't 
the people think that God loves them. Well, if Malachi was written near the end of those efforts to rebuild the temple, uh, we can make some educated guesses. That optimism, think about it, when you're building something new, there's an excitement about this building, right? We're going to build this great building. We're going to have a temple again. We're going to worship God like it used to be. But if you read through the book of Ezra, you discover that that new temple wasn't as grand as the original temple. Those people that remember the original temple weep when they see the new temple because they realize it's never going to be the same. It's not like it used to be. And the crowning jewel of the temple was always God's presence, which manifests itself above the ark. But the ark had been lost at some point in Israel's history. And so they built this temple, but it was never occupied by its intended recipient, God. And so the people start to feel some disappointment. Wait, maybe this this comeback isn't going to be as good as we thought it would be. The people were originally excited to return to Jerusalem, and they remembered all these promises that God had made them from time in ages past, that one day Jerusalem would be the greatest city in the world, and people from every nation would stream into Jerusalem. And so now the people are there, they're rebuilding the temple, they get that done. They think, is this the time that God is finally going to answer his promises? But nothing happens. And soon Israel gets taken over by other invaders. The actual temple didn't look as good as the plans for it did. The dreams gave way to reality. And soon the people start sinking into discouragement and depression and saying, where was God? Why didn't he show up? Maybe they felt a little bit like a lot of us are going to feel in a few weeks' time when we failed all of our New Year's resolutions. January 1st comes, you've got big dreams. I want to start exercising more. I want to stop these bad habits. I want to add these good habits. And we've all got dreams for 2023. But before long, the weight of reality, our past, our own weaknesses, sinks those goals. And you can descend into the discouragement. Things are never going to change. I think that's what God's people were feeling in this moment. We tried, but it looks like God's forgotten us. looks like he's given up on us. Does God even care about us anymore? And when you're in that place of discouragement, it's so easy then to kind of look back at your own failures. Well, I knew God couldn't love someone who'd messed up like I have. I knew God wouldn't let that thing from my past go. I actually deserve to suffer like this. And this brings us then to our third point, the basis or the foundation of God's love. So what evidence does God give for his love? It's not at all what you would expect. If if you want to show love for someone, what, what do you do? Maybe you buy them a gift, you serve them, you clean up the house for them, you make dinner, you give them a back rub, you you treat them to a nice meal, whatever it is. But, but you probably wouldn't say, if you're trying to prove your love for your spouse or someone important to you, well, I loved your great-great-great-grandfather Wilford. <laughs> Isn't that enough? But that is what God says here. Jacob lived some thousand years before any of these people. That's a lot of great-great-grandfathers ago. I mean, can any of you mention, name, a grandfather from a thousand years ago? And if you were doubting someone's love for you, would it make any difference if they looked you in the eyes and say, well, isn't it enough that I loved your great, great, great times 25 grandfather? 
that's not going to make any difference for you. So why does God think this is a good answer to show his love? It shows in one part that God operates differently than us. Notice how that wording, I have loved Jacob, is in that same form as the opening statement, I have loved you. It shows that that love that God has for Jacob, it's not a past love, but it's a present, continuing love that even informs the present circumstances. It's a love that continues to every one of Jacob's descendants. Now, to make things more confusing, though, then there's this whole piece about Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother. Technically, he was his older brother. They were twins, but Esau came out first. He was the firstborn then. And in that culture, the firstborn was greatly favored. He received the bulk of the inheritance. He held a special responsibility in the family. But God here does something totally different. He says, I'm going to throw out all the cultural norms, and I'm going to love the secondborn and reject the firstborn. Now, this is strong language here, and I realize this may trip some of you up as you're wrestling with what does God mean here by saying he hates Esau. Stick with me through it, though. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, he, he's commenting on this passage, and he writes this, Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, speaking about Jacob and Esau's mother, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, quoting from our passage, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So think about it here. Here are two infants, two twins, still in the womb, and before any one of them had done something good or bad, God says, I have chosen this one to love, and I have chosen this one to reject. Again, this is kind of tough for us to swallow, and I'd be happy to talk with anyone more about it after the service if you want. But I want you to see there's also a comfort in this. Because think about it. It means that God's decision to love you was never based on your performance, and thus it cannot be broken by your, by your failures. See, God's choice to love you was always rooted not in how good you're doing, but in his free choice to say, I want to love this person. And because God is unchangeable, when he chooses to love somebody, he loves them with an unchangeable, unwavering love. And so in one sense, when God says, I have loved Jacob, one of the reasons why that is such a powerful argument for why he still loves them is because he's saying, because you are Jacob's descendants, I can do nothing but love you. That love is rooted not in anything that you've done or failed to do. It's not rooted, in fact, of anything of your life. The love that I love you with right now is rooted in a choice that I made to love your ancestor with an unbreakable love. And that love goes far beyond your life. And that's why then Paul goes on to say in Romans 9, 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Aren't you thankful that God's love for you is not based on how well you keep your New Year's resolution? It is a love that is much bigger than your latest success, 
And it is a love that is stronger than your largest failure. It's an unbreakable, never stopping love. And if you can actually believe that in your day-to-day life, it will transform your life because you will rest in the secure, the security of knowing that you are loved. And you'll stop trying to earn it. You'll stop seeking in other places. You'll stop making all these dumb decisions to try to get some feeling and know that God loves me. Okay, what do we do with all the rest of this part about him hating Esau? Now, Edom is the nation that descended from Esau. So these are like distant cousins or relatives of the Israelites. They often terrorize the Israelites. And then God says... Their, na- their land will be named a wicked land. <laughs> That's not exactly the state slogan you want to choose to get people to move to you. Welcome to a wicked land. I guess Las Vegas did that, though. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that we struggle with today is this idea that of God's judgment. This idea that people are sinners. I think today we, we like to think, well, everyone's basically good, but we just all make some mistakes. But that view is actually, I would say, a minority view, not just in history, but even around the globe today, in a world where hate is so strong. And and you see it on the news. It's hard to say that people are basically good when you see so many atrocities that take place around the globe. I think the, the idea of a God who doesn't judge, a God who doesn't hate, some people have said it's, it's like that type of belief can only grow up in relatively calm middle-class suburbs where the greatest injustices, though we do face real injustices, but for most of us, the greatest injustices we feel, face are you know, getting scammed with an online purchase and hoping Visa sends you a refund for it. But there's so many people around the world, and even some in this very congregation, who have suffered under the weight of evil and have wounds that still hurt because of it. And to know that God is just means that God just doesn't come to you or those you love who have been deeply wounded by evil and say, come on, guys, just get over it. Let's all hold hands and hug and act like it wasn't a big deal. No, there's a God who is willing to judge evil. And that is incredibly comforting for those who have suffered on the other side of evil. Because it means that evil doesn't win. It means that God, in the end, doesn't just sweep all the wounds that you've suffered under the rug and say, just get over it. It's it's in the past now. But God says, he looks at you. He looks at that bottle of all the tears that he's collected that you've cried. And he says, I will make all of these sad things untrue. It means for those of you who are suffering under injustice, you don't have to take revenge into your own hands. You don't have to think, well, no one's, they're going to get away with this, so I better do something. But you can place your revenge, you can place justice into the hands of God who deals fairly and rightly with everything, and he sees everything. We've got to take one more step, though. See, the thing is that Scripture says evil, that vein of evil that runs through Hitler, Stalin, all the other wicked people that we know deserve some sort of justice also runs through every single one of us. 
that we are more like the most wicked people in the world than we want to admit. We are more capable of atrocities than we want to imagine. This is one of the things that's always struck me about World War II, where if you watch certain movies or read books about it, you have German officials who killed thousands of Jews during the day and then would come home, hug their kids, kiss their wife, and be a good family man. Evil runs through us all. We just, for various reasons, God restrains it, restricts it. And if you don't think you're capable of some of those same atrocities, you probably don't know your heart that well. If you look at both Jacob and Esau and their lives, you see that neither one of them was a great person. Esau was ruled by his emotions. He was brash. Jacob was conniving and deceptive. And the Bible puts us all on the same playing field. It says, evil runs through us all. And for various reasons that all in the end depend on all of God's grace, how you grew up, the influences on you, what, what country you were born into, what culture you were born into, your family life will have a large effect on how that sin may manifest itself. But the root is in all of us. And here's why this matters. It levels the playing field. Sometimes Christians are accused of being judgmental about saying everyone else is a sinner. But if you accept this Christian teaching that we're all sinners, you can't judge anyone. You cannot think you're better than anyone because you realize that that line of evil that runs through the people you love to hate also runs through your own heart. You're more like them than you want to admit. You cannot condemn another person without also condemning yourself. And the beauty of Christianity is that God chooses to love sinners, people that don't deserve it. He doesn't love you based on how hard you are trying, how good you are, but he chooses to love you because he wants to. And that means to be loved by God is the most humbling thing there is. Why would a perfect and pure God love someone who keeps screwing up like me? And it would make us not judgmental, but humble. It makes us not feeling superior, but astounded and hopeful. If if God can love someone as screwed up as me, I know he can love someone like you. And what is that love then rooted in? We get more of the picture than they had in Malachi because ultimately that love is rooted in Christ. See, God here, he's saying, the assurance that I love you is because you're Jacob's descendants. But brothers and sisters, on this side of the cross, we have even a greater assurance because God chooses to love you not because you're born into Jacob's family, but because you have been reborn into Christ's family. And that means no matter who you are, even if you're an Edomite, like in this passage, living under a a lifetime of curses, you can be reborn in Christ. Maybe you felt cursed by God. Maybe because of all these continually bad things that have happened to you, you wonder, has God forgotten about me? You can be reborn in Christ, so that you can have this titanium-tough assurance that God loves you because God loves Jesus. 
And through his grace, you have been transplanted and reborn into Jesus's family. And all the assurance of God's love is rooted in Jesus, not how you happen to be doing right now. What an assurance you have. You see, every one of us, we deserve that judgment. We've all sinned. We've all failed. But Christ takes it. That's what the cross is. Christ on the cross becomes what is described here of Edom. Christ on the cross is in a wicked land, a person always under the wrath of God. Christ takes that place so that all that is left for you is love. For Christians, our judgment took place some 2,000 years ago so that you are free even of the things you're going to do next week. And God has only love left for you. But for those who reject that grace of Christ, will have to answer for their sins. And where do you stand? And then there's that last line at the end about the people seeing this and saying, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. This ties back into that idea of judgment. You know, it seems like a lot of people get away with doing bad things. There are lines of victims who will never see justice in this life. And you wonder, does God even care anymore? Maybe you've been in that situation and you've been told, well, there's nothing we can do now. It's outside the statute of limitations. There's a loophole in the law. It's beyond our jurisdiction. That's what's so beautiful about the end here. God's love, God's power has no borders, has no limitations in its jurisdiction, no places where he doesn't see what happened. He is the ultimate witness, and he sees you, and he sees your wounds, he sees your pain, he sees your tears, and he says to you, I will make all things right. No matter how much you've suffered, one day, you will be able to say with all of God's people, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe this. Lord, help us to see that your unbreakable love is such a life-transforming assurance that you love us even when it looks so dark, that when no one else sees what is going on in our life, you do and you will make it right. That your love is not fickle like ours. Your love is not based in your feelings, but your love is based in a promise that you will not let us go. And you showed how seriously you took that promise when Christ willingly took the cross so that we could live with you in your eternal home. Transform our lives, we pray. Amen. Each week we have a time of confession. They said that line of evil runs through every single one of us. And the beauty of believing in God's unbreakable love is that it allows you to be really honest about the things that you're even afraid to admit about yourself because you realize there's nothing that you can say that will cause God to push you away, because his love is stronger than your deepest failures.